Well, good evening. What a privilege it is to be together tonight with you to sing a song like we just sang, encouraging us to live for Jesus. If I can get this microphone moved to a place where they can hear me. All right, let's try that again. Can you hear it now? Can you hear me now? Okay, we'll do that. Let me start over. Good to be with you tonight. Sing a beautiful song about living for Jesus, and what a wonderful thing that is to live for Jesus in this life that we might live with Him in eternity. God, through His grace, sent His Son so that we might have that opportunity. I'm concerned as I look around in this world today, though, that there are a lot of obstacles to living for Jesus. And I've been asked to speak about a topic tonight that is certainly one of those obstacles. It's a very serious matter. It's something that's becoming more and more accepted in the world. And less and less is it something that Christians stand against. And that concerns me greatly. And so the topic that I was asked to speak on tonight is the subject of the Christian and alcohol. We need in our culture and in the church today a reality check on the issue of drinking alcohol. In our culture, drinking is made to look enjoyable in advertisements, in TV, movies. Over $2 billion per year is spent in America not on making alcohol, much, much more is spent on making alcohol, Much, much more is spent on distributing alcohol. Two billion dollars a year is spent in America on advertising alcohol. It's a big business. Acceptance of drinking alcohol is ingrained in our culture at every turn, isn't it? We're told that it's okay if we drink responsibly. I've known a lot of people who drank. Most of them would say that they drank responsibly. In private conversations with them, if we ever got around to talking about them, something would come up about their drinking. I'd almost invariably find out, however, that they had some story about some time in their life when they got a little tipsy or got a little buzzed and did something sort of silly. They weren't drinking responsibly. I don't really know anybody who drinks who would tell you that they have always drunk responsibly. But we're told it's okay as long as we drink responsibly. That's what our culture says. Ephesians 5.18 in God's book says, Do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Our culture focuses its attention on making sure that homosexuals are not mistreated, but rather celebrated in our culture. Our culture focuses its attention on making sure that our children eat their vegetables and that there's no fat in school lunches. Our children, our our culture focuses its attention on making sure that adults are not allowed to order a supersized soft drink when they go to McDonald's. When the real life consequences of drinking alcohol are virtually ignored in our culture. The only time you hear anything about it is if it relates to drinking and driving. Then it's some sort of terrible sin. But any other time, the way the world looks at it, 
Drinking's okay. Is that what you found? That's what I observe. That's what I observe in our culture. Folks, we need a reality check. The world needs a reality check. Just by its own standards. Leave off for a moment the Word of God. The world by its own standards needs a reality check when it comes to the serious problems that are created by encouraging folks to drink alcohol. We need to understand that yes, drinking and driving is a terrible problem in our culture. Over 10,000 deaths per year in the United States are related to drinking and driving. On the average, every 90 seconds, someone is injured in a drunk driving crash. Every 90 seconds. Many of us, including myself, have lost loved ones, friends, and acquaintances due to drinking and driving. The National Highway Transportation Safety Administration estimated that 4 million people are victimized every year by 2.6 million drunk driving crashes. Now, they're not killed, they may not be injured, but there are that many accidents due to drunk driving in the United States of America. Besides all of that, though, and the world would say, oh yeah, that's a problem, we need to cut down, we can drink just as long as we don't drive. The world would admit that's a problem. But what the world doesn't admit is that alcohol is directly connected to violent crime. And that is a huge problem. A survey was done in 2004 and it found that 37% of state prisoners serving time for violent offenses said that they were under the influence of alcohol at the time of the offense. They admitted it themselves. Besides that, we have all sorts of problems in our homes, including crimes like domestic violence and sexual assault. You just, you just talk to any policeman who's out on patrol, who has to answer these calls night after night after night, calls of domestic violence, sexual assault. We have a woman who's a nurse at the congregation where I preach back in Athens, Alabama, and she deals in, in, in a trauma unit with people, women who've been sexually assaulted. You ask those kinds of people who work with victims of those situations, how many times alcohol's involved? And they will tell you virtually every time. It's a major factor in the breakup of families, alcohol is. Studies have shown, and this is fascinating, I didn't know this until I started studying for this particular lesson. But studies have shown that the more you drink, the more likely you are to get divorced. There's a direct correlation to drinking and divorce. It's irrefutable. Besides that, you drink, you're more likely to engage in risky sexual behavior. It's connected to the spread of sexually transmitted diseases, unwanted pregnancies. I have known young women who became pregnant, who'd been out to some party drinking, and they couldn't tell you who the father was. It happens. Loss of job, loss of income. I've known multiple people in my life, maybe you have too, who've lost their jobs because they were drinking on the job. They couldn't stop. Do you hear about that in the news every night? If you watch television, what you see are beer commercials celebrating it. 
Right? That's our culture. If you watch, if you watch television and movies, listen to songs on the radio, it's a wonderful thing. Our culture needs a reality check. It needs to wake up to, and see what's going on with alcohol in our culture. Alcohol also has a net negative effect on our health. Drinking too much just one time has serious effects on the body, including organs like the brain, which you can damage irreparably, organs like the liver. I've had two great uncles pass away with cirrhosis of the liver due to drinking alcohol. It can affect the pancreas, can cause cancer, it suppresses the immune system for up to 24 hours after you drink, your immune system is suppressed. And people say, oh, you know, you'll hear once in a while, all you hear about anything concerning the, the, the bad effects of alcohol on, on your body. Well, you won't hear anything. You'll hear some study once in a while where some scientists have said, you know what, if you take a little red wine, it seems to clear the arteries out a little bit. It seems there, there are some antioxidants in, in red wine, so maybe it's good to, to drink a little bit of red wine. That's what you'll hear. You won't hear all this other stuff. The net effect on, on, on the body of drinking is, is negative. Now, we'll talk in this lesson. There are a couple of good things it can do for the body. We'll talk about that. But the net effect is, is negative. It's like shooting yourself in the foot to stop a headache, you know. Yeah, I'm going to drink a little bit of wine to clear my arteries. Doctors who, who do autopsies on, on cadavers who, who, who are drinkers, who are drunks, say, sure enough, they, they have clean arteries. They die of cirrhosis of the liver. They die of cancer. They, they die of all these alcohol-related problems. But they've got clear arteries. Great. That's reality. These are the real-life true consequences of alcohol in our society. Don't let this reality check bounce. Don't let it bounce. Now, I'm not here tonight to talk about all these things. I'm not here tonight to educate our society or our culture. It needs education. It needs realization. But the, the, the thing I'm talking about tonight is that, that alcohol not only has issues, problems that it causes that are physical in nature, that have to do with our family, our culture, our health, our well-being. But my concern tonight and your concern and why you're here tonight is because alcohol has an effect on us spiritually. If it didn't, Paul would never have said, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. My daddy was a great man, served as an elder in the church for a while. He was very much aware of the sinfulness of the world in which we live. And he told me one time, and I don't know if he got this from somebody else, he probably did, but he told me, he said, Steve, the, the church is like a boat. It's like a ship sailing on the sea. And the sea is the world. And, and the boat, the ship, does just fine. It does just fine as long as you don't get too much water in the boat. But when you start to get the world in the boat, 
then you've got problems. And I'm here to tell you tonight, brothers and sisters in Christ, we have got problems. It's in the boat. And I've got brothers and sisters in Christ who are defending social drinking, some practicing social drinking. A lot of younger Christians especially that I run across have no clue as to what might even be wrong with social drinking. We need a reality check from Scripture. As we begin to look at Scripture tonight, I want to look at a couple of different concepts in Scripture. The first of them is just a brief discussion about what wine is. As you go through the Bible, the word wine is used an awful lot. In the Old Testament, it's translated from several different words, primarily uh, from a Hebrew word, yayin, in Isaiah chapter 16 and verse 10. You'll notice that that word refers to a drink that didn't have alcohol in it, that wasn't fermented. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, in Isaiah 16 and verse 10, it talks about how there no treaders will tread out wine in the presses. So when you get, take the grapes to the wine press and you, you, you stomp the grapes and the juice comes out, what comes out? Is it fermented? Is it alcoholic? No, it's just grape juice. So here's a place in the Bible where the word wine is used to refer to what must have been grape juice. What we would call grape juice. Now that tells me, there were no other passage that tells me and you, that sometimes in the Bible the word wine refers to something that's not alcoholic. That doesn't have any alcohol in it. There's another Hebrew word that's sometimes translated wine in the Old Testament. It's the word tirosh. It's found in Isaiah chapter 65 and verse 8. It's found in a lot of other places too, but I'm just pointing these out to you to show that the word wine in the Bible can refer and sometimes does refer to something that's not alcoholic. Isaiah chapter 65 and verse 8 talks about how that new wine is found in the cluster. Well, again, what's in the cluster of grapes is, is not alcoholic, it's not fermented. Man has to take it, squeeze it. You know, put it in a container of some kind, some kind, close it up, let it set for a long time in order for it to ferment. So what's in the, what's in the cluster of the, of the grapes is not, is not fermented, it's not alcoholic. So that Hebrew word is also used to refer to what we would just call grape juice. And then in the New Testament, uh, the primary word for wine in the New Testament is the Greek word oinos. And... Jesus says, using that word in Matthew and Mark chapter 2 and verse 22, Jesus says, No one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts the wineskins, and the wine is spilled. New wine put into old wineskins won't work because they're already stretched out. The fermentation process, process stretches the skins. You put the new wine in new skins so it can stretch as the wine ferments. Right? What does that tell you about new wine? In that context, it's not fermented yet. You're putting it in a container to ferment it. So there, in that passage, the word wine is plainly used to refer to unfermented, what we would call grape juice. Now, you're going to say, well, preacher, yeah, I, I get it. There, the word wine in the Bible can be used to refer to unfermented, un, non-alcoholic grape juice. What's your point? Well, here's my point. 
it can be and is used to refer to something that doesn't have alcohol in it, to something that's unfermented. It is plainly also used sometimes, both in the Old and New Testament, words for wine are used to describe liquids that were fermented, that did have alcohol in them. No doubt about that. A lot of times, when something was fermented in Bible times, even uh, if, if juice was fermented, it might not have a very high alcohol content. It depends on how much sugar in the, was in the grapes. That's, that was the uh, limiting factor. How much sugar is in the grapes? If they're really sweet grapes, it could have ferment a lot of alcohol. If, it, if they're not so sweet, it would have a lesser, lesser percentage, maybe just even 2% two, two or so. But my point is, when you see the word wine in Scripture just by itself, you don't know if it's got alcohol in it or not just by that word. It might not have. It might have a very little bit. It might have up to 9% content by, by content alcohol. So anywhere from 0 to 9%. There are, are a number of contexts in Scripture where you can tell that it's talking about alcoholic wine. There are three verses that we just looked at and probably several others that you can tell it's talking about non-alcoholic wine. Right? Now, the context helps us determine in a lot of cases. A lot of times we can look at the context and say, oh, well, this must be talking about wine because it's talking about people getting drunk on it or whatever. That must have alcohol in it. But then there are some other contexts where it's not so easy to tell. There are a number of passages in the Old Testament that refer to wine being a blessing. Well, does that include wine with a lot of alcohol in it? Is that a blessing to man? Or is that just talking about the grape juice? Somebody says, well, I, I can't tell. People who want, want us to drink wine with alcohol in it says, oh, it's, it's, it's including, yeah, the wine with the alcohol in it. People that are teetotalers, as they say, and, and wouldn't have any alcohol. They, oh, no, it can't have. You know, so, but that's just arguing back and forth. So what I'd like to do tonight for a little while is take the argument out of a discussion of the word wine. Now, we're going to come back to it a little bit later, but we're not going to talk about wine for a little bit, okay? We're going to talk about a word that's used in Scripture that we know for sure describes a liquid, a libation that had alcohol in it, that had quite a bit of alcohol in it. And that word is usually translated strong drink. It's found in the Old Testament. The Hebrew word is shakar. It's translated often strong drink, an intoxicant that is intensely alcoholic liquor. Brown, Driver, and Briggs define shakar as strong drink, intoxicating drink, fermented or intoxicating liquor. And then I have Strong's definition for you up on the screen. This word is found many times in the Old Testament. And it is consistently condemned for use by man other than in a couple of passages, one that allows it as a sacrifice. You could, you could sacrifice it to God. And the other where you could use it for medicine. But in every other case in the Old Testament, 
Strong drink, alcoholic drink, is condemned. And I've got what I think are all of the passages where that word is contained up on the screen for you. We don't have time to go through all of these passages one by one. They're there for you to write down. I'm going to just briefly tell you what's in each one, and you can check, check me later on all of these. In Leviticus chapter 10 and verse 9, priests were not to drink wine, or it says intoxicating drink, shakar. They are not to drink intoxicating drink when on duty. That was the law of the Old Testament. Let me ask you tonight, in the New Testament, we're all Christians. We who are, who are Christians, I should say, we are all priests, right? We're priests. When is it that we're not on duty? As priests. See, the priests that were on duty in the, in the Old Testament, they were never to drink strong drink while they were on duty. We're priests in the New Now, that, that doesn't prove anything. I'm, I'm just, that, that doesn't prove any point there. But it, it kind of interesting to think about, isn't it? In Numbers chapter 6 and verse 3, the law of the Nazarite was that the Nazarite was to separate himself from wine and strong drink. In Judges chapter 13 and verse 4 and verse 7 and verse 14, it requires that Samson and, and Samson's mother also abstain from strong drink. Now in Numbers chapter 28 and verse 7, it appears that this is something that could be used as an offering, a drink offering that's poured out on the ground before the Lord. In Deuteronomy chapter 14, and verse 26, you might want to turn there in your Bibles with me, because I think this is perhaps the only place in the Old Testament where man is allowed to drink strong drink for any purpose that's not medicinal. And in this, on this occasion, it has to do with the offering of the tithe sacrifice. In, in what's being described in Deuteronomy 14, a person is not capable, not able to make his tithe offering the way he normally would. So he's allowed to take that money and buy just virtually any kind of food and drink that he wants and indulge himself and eat that food that he bought with his tithe offering, eat that for his offering. So that's what's being described in verse 26. You shall spend that money, verse 26, on whatever your heart desires, for oxen, for sheep, for wine or similar drink, and that word similar drink there is shikar, or similar drink, whatever your heart desires, you shall eat there before the Lord, and you shall rejoice, you and your household. So here, it's again in conjunction with an offering to God, where strong drink could be imbibed, along with a lot of other things that normally perhaps one would not eat or drink. But this was sort of an indulgence that the Lord allowed as a part of this offering. As you go through the rest of the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 29 and verse 6, Israel did not drink strong drink in the wilderness. 1 Samuel 1 and verse 15, Hannah was not drunk with wine or intoxicating drink with Shekhar as she was before the tabernacle. Psalm 69 and verse 2 refers to the song of drunkards, those who drink intoxicating drink. Proverbs 20 and verse 1 condemns strong drink. It says that wine is a mocker and strong drink is a brawler. And those, whoever is led astray by it, is not wise. 
And then in Proverbs chapter 31, you have an interesting passage, verses 4, 5, and 6 of Proverbs 31. We learn that it's not for kings or princes to drink strong drink, lest they pervert justice. Concerns me when, not too long ago, uh, I saw footage of our president sitting on the White House lawn with two guys, a black man and a white man, that he was trying to help get along, drinking beers. How's that really going to help? It concerns me to think that we have many leaders in our country who think nothing about doing a lot of hard drinking and are working on making very serious decisions for our country. It concerned the Lord of old as well. He said they weren't supposed to do that because they'd pervert justice. Might be one of the reasons we have so many strange laws and perversions of justice in our government today. Because we have so many government officials who drink. But passing on, verse 6 is the verse I think that we need to focus on now. Because it says that it's good to give strong drink to him who is perishing, and wine to those who are bitter of heart. Somebody's dying in the Old Testament. They have some dread disease or they've suffered some mortal wound on the field of battle. They didn't have morphine. They didn't have the drugs we have today. What do you, what do, you do to alleviate their pain? What do you do to help put them out of their misery? You give them strong drink. That's what you do. So it's being used medicinally here. For someone who's dying, bitterness of heart may be a synonym for that in the Hebrew parallelism, or it could refer to somebody who's just really, really depressed. In either case, wine, strong drink, is being used as medicine on this occasion. And so that and the Deuteronomy passage that talks about as an offering, those are the only two times in all of the Old Testament where strong drink is commended in any way. In every other way, in every other place, it's always condemned. Always looked at negatively. Let me show you some other verses. Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 11. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may follow intoxicating drink. Chapter 5 and verse 22 of Isaiah. Woe to men mighty at drinking wine. Woe to men violent for mixing intoxicating drink. Chapter 24 and verse 29 of Isaiah. God will curse the land so that strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. Isaiah 28 and verse 7. And I'll pay some attention to this verse for just a moment. They also have erred through wine, through intoxicating drink. They are out of the way. The priest and the prophet have erred through intoxicating drink. They are swallowed up by wine. They are out of the way through intoxicating drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. Three times in that passage it says people were out of the way, going the wrong direction, through intoxicating drink, strong drink, shakar. Three times it's condemned in that one verse. Isaiah 56 and verse 12. The blind watchmen, the worthless shepherds of God's people. Come, one says, I will bring wine and we will fill ourselves with intoxicating drink. Tomorrow will be as today and much more abundant. I hope you get the point. Strong drink is condemned in Scripture, in the Old Testament. 
but there's much more of a point to make. You might be interested to know that ancient wines, and particularly the strong drink that we've been talking about now for the last few minutes, strong drink contained less than 10% alcohol by volume. Less than 10% alcohol. That was as strong as they could make a drink in ancient times. Couldn't contain any more alcohol than that. That's important to our discussion tonight. When you compare the strong drink that's uniformly condemned in the Old Testament with what we have on the market today in America, what you can go and buy in a liquor store somewhere, when you compare that to what is condemned as strong drink in the Old Testament, what you'll find out is that the strong drink of the Old Testament is weak drink compared to what we've got today. Ancient strong drink was no more, as I said, than 10% alcohol. There's a quote on the screen from a man by the name of Bruce Waltke. I don't expect anyone here to particularly know who he is, but he is an eminent scholar. He wrote the commentary in the New International Commentary on the Old Testament in the book of Proverbs. He's especially well-known as a Hebrew Bible scholar, or scholar of biblical Hebrew. He wrote a book entitled Intermediate Hebrew Grammar, and also a book on the introduction to Hebrew syntax. He is one of the world's most renowned authorities on biblical Hebrew. There probably aren't ten people in the world who could argue biblical Hebrew with Bruce Waltke. Okay? That's why his quotation's on the screen. Waltke says, This strong drink, shakar, denotes any inebriating drink with about 7 to 10% alcoholic content. 7 to 10%. That's what he says the word means. How does that compare to what we've got today? Modern wines have an alcohol content of between 8 and 15%. The reason for that is we've come up, modern man has, with a couple of processes that increase the alcoholic content that's available in wine. There's a fellow who lived around 1800, a Frenchman by the the name of Jean-Antoine Chaptal, who discovered that if you added sugar, just raw sugar, to the grape juice when you put it in the container, it would increase the alcohol content while it was fermented. That process is called chaptalization. And through that process, you can increase uh, the alcohol content of fermenting wines up to 15%. That's the natural limit, though. can go no higher than 15%. Well, already, 15% is almost twice as much as the strong drink, not just the wine, but the strong drink of the Old Testament. That's double what the strong drink of the Old Testament was, 7 to 10%. You see that? Beyond that, though, we're so brilliant, we've discovered that we can not only increase the alcohol content by adding sugar, you know what else we could do? We could just inject the, the libation, the wine, or whatever it is, with straight alcohol. Put as much alcohol in it as we want. And so some wines, Zinfandels, have as much as 22% alcohol content. 
Here's what we're looking at today. Popular beers are usually in the 4 to 6% range. That would have been just below the, the edge of strong drink in the Old Testament. But there are some beers that have higher alcohol content even than that. Hard liquors have 40 to 50% alcohol content. And bourbon may have as much as 80% alcohol content. You're looking at something that's ten times stronger than what strong drink was in the Old Testament. That what was universally condemned back there. Virtually every sort of alcoholic beverage sold today in America would qualify as strong drink in biblical times. Most of it, strong drink times anywhere from two to ten. Now, let's talk about the word wine again for a minute. Any passage you want to go to in the Bible that might look like it's okaying people, making it okay to drink wine, you're comparing apples and oranges. No, you're not. You're comparing cider and whiskey. <laughs> That's what you're comparing. <coughs> it's not talking about what we have today. You see that? Even if every passage in the New Testament and Old Testament both said, yeah, you can drink a little bit of wine that has alcohol in it. Even if there were a plain passage that says that, and there is not, it's condemned. But even if there were a plain passage that says it, what they're talking about is not what we have. And people have the temerity, the unmitigated gall to go to these passages and say, oh yeah, well we can just go out and you know take a keg to the river or a, a, a six-pack to the game or whatever we want to do and drink all of that. You've got to be kidding. Not based on Scripture you can't. You're not even talking about the same thing. Now, I want to go to 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 3. As we turn our discussion to what the New Testament says about drinking wine. I'm not talking about just drunkenness here. I'm not talking about wild parties. Those are words that we'll look at momentarily. But I want you to notice that drinking is generally prohibited, social drinking at least, in the Scriptures. And I go to 1 Peter 4 and verse 3. Peter says that we've spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lust, Drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. There are three alcohol-related sins in this text. Drunkenness. Most people admit that drunkenness is wrong. Even people of the world sort of understand that's not a good thing. In most states, you're drunk legally when you have a blood alcohol content of 0.08. That's the legal definition of drunkenness. Most people understand that's, that's not good. Revelries is a word that describes drinking parties. Think of a frat party, something like that, where there's a lot of drinking going on. People are, are there to get drunk and to, and to have a wild time. That's what a revelry is. So you have these alcohol-related sins. The third one is the one I want to focus on with you. 
And in the King James Version, it's translated banquetings. The New King James that I use has drinking parties. It's translated from the Greek word potos. And it simply refers to a banqueting, a carousing. Other translations have literally a drinking. Literally, the word means a drinking. Without reference to how much is drunk. R.C. Trench, who is a great New Testament Greek scholar of a generation past, actually a couple of generations past, I guess, wrote a book that's a standard in most preachers' library. It's called Synonyms of the New Testament. And he comments on this particular word, potos here, and he says it's not necessarily excessive. Further, he says it's related to words of excess in that it gives the opportunity to excess. So think about what goes on at a modern banquet or what we call a cocktail party. What goes on there? People aren't there really to get drunk, but there's drinking going on, right? Or, or, or what goes on when you, you take a, uh, you know, some beer to the, the river or to a, break out a six-pack to watch the ball game? What's going on there? Yeah, not, nobody's really purposely getting drunk. Maybe somebody will, but you're just having a good time and socializing and drinking. That's what this word describes. That's exactly what this word describes. That's what it's talking about, by definition. And it doesn't really matter how much is there, it's just that you've got an opportunity to drink. Not necessarily to excess. It's what we preachers used to call, and I still call, social drinking. And Peter says, don't do it. There could hardly be, a, somebody show, says, well, show me a passage in Scripture that says social drinking is a sin. It could not possibly be any clearer from the definition of the word. I, I, I don't know what people are looking for. That's what the word means. Peter says don't do it. Peter in this context is trying to urge people not to go back to a worldly lifestyle. People who are Christians, don't go back to that lifestyle. You might be interested to know that the word here for drinking parties or banquetings, that word potos, has a verb form, potizo, that's found in a couple of places in the New Testament. It's found in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 42, where Jesus talks about giving someone to drink a cup of cold water. Remember that? You give them a cup of cold, cold water and, and, and you won't lose your reward. How big a cup is that? Doesn't say, does it? Just give them a drink of water in that case. Could be just a little bit, right? Here, this noun is used to talking about drinking alcohol on social occasions. Peter says don't do it. He's urging us not to go back to a worldly lifestyle. What an important thing for Christians to understand. Peter will say in 2 Peter 2 and verse 20, if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. Drinking is prohibited there. Drinking leads to other sins. Obviously, it leads to drunkenness. Nobody ever got drunk without 
starting to drink. Drunkenness, as we saw in Ephesians 5.18, is forbidden. Be not drunk with wine. Galatians 5.21, it's a work of the flesh. Someone says, well, you know, I'm a righteous person. I'm a Christian. I, I can drink a little bit. I know my limits. I, I know when to stop drinking. Really? You can handle that? You're, you must be more righteous than, than Lot. Righteous Lot. You remember righteous Lot? The Bible calls him a righteous man whose daughters gave him wine and got him drunk and then became pregnant by him. That sad, sad story in Genesis chapter 19. You must be more righteous than Noah. The righteous man whose righteousness and faith saved the world. He couldn't handle it. He didn't know when to stop. Became drunk and uncovered himself in his tent. You just you don't have to ask Noah or, or Lot. You just ask millions and millions of people in this world whose lives have been damaged or destroyed by poor choices that they made while under the influence of alcohol that they thought they could handle. That they thought wouldn't be a problem. Jesus taught us to pray a prayer. Father, lead us not into temptation. Even if you didn't think drinking was a sin, drinking alcohol is a sin. You know drunkenness is. How can you pray a prayer like lead me not into temptation and start drinking? It doesn't make any sense. It leads to a loss of self-control. Drinking does. Self-control is commended and required of us as Christians. We're to add to our knowledge self-control, 2 Peter 1 and verse 6. Elders are to be self-controlled, Titus 1 and verse 8. But alcohol takes away self-control, doesn't it? How much alcohol do you need to drink before your ability to drive becomes impaired? Somebody says, oh, well, it's got to be up to 0.08. Mm-mm. Certain driving skills, such as steering a car while at the same time responding to changes in traffic, can be, can be impaired, science has shown, with a blood alcohol concentration as low as 0.02. That's when, that's when the problems start. A 160-pound man will have a blood alcohol content of 0.04 after drinking two beers. Although most states set the legal limit at 0.08, it's known that impairment of driving skills begins at a much lower level. So let me ask you this. At what level do you become impaired in your parenting skills? At what level do you become impaired in your praying ability? To pray to God like you ought to. Your Bible study. Your ability to evangelize somebody. At what level do you become impaired to such a degree that you lose a little bit of self-control? 
and your inhibitions begin to disappear and you start to make unrighteous choices that you would not otherwise make. Oh, you're not drunk. Maybe you're not even buzzed. Maybe you don't even feel it. But you're impaired. A lot of people defend drinking. A lot of people who are Christians do, and they try to use the Bible to do so. I need to talk for a few minutes about some of the arguments that they make. I won't have time to deal with all of these in much detail. Um, I suspect that we'll have some questions on them in uh, the next hour in the uh, virtual radio in the virtual broadcast. But I want you to turn over to John chapter two with me. Probably the most common argument that I hear in defense of drinking alcohol is that, well, Jesus made wine, and so he condoned it. Jesus made wine, so he condoned the drinking of alcohol. Christ, no doubt, turned water into wine at the wedding feast at Cana of Galilee. It demonstrates something to us about his deity, about his help for man when man can't help himself, and a number of other things. But the question in John chapter 2 is, is the wine that Jesus made, did it contain alcohol? To make the assertion that it justifies drinking alcohol, you'd have to say that you know for sure. We said this word wine, sometimes it can mean it contains alcohol, sometimes it means it doesn't. So you tell me, you know for sure that this wine had alcohol in it. And I'm telling you tonight that I'm just about as sure as anybody can be that it didn't have alcohol in it, or at least not much of any. You say, well, how can you know that? There were six water pots filled, uh, set out there that were empty. Jesus instructed the servants to fill each of the water pots full to the brim. Each water pot contained 20 to 30 gallons, uh, an average of 25 gallons apiece. Multiply that by six, what do you have? 150 gallons. 150 gallons of wine is what Jesus makes. The master of the feast, Jesus never touches it all. He just he tells the servants what to do. He tells the servants to take some of it, take it to the master of the feast. The master of the feast tastes it, and do you see what he says? He says... When the master, it says in verse 9, When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, did not know where it came from, the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, the inferior, you have kept the good wine until now. Now there's a necessary implication there that the people at this wedding feast were already satiated. They'd already drunk up all the wine there was. Somebody says, well, these feasts could last for days. doesn't matter how long the feast was. They had well drunk. Okay? <laughs> whatever it was, whatever kind of wine it was, they'd, they'd drunk it all and they had well drunk. The idea there is of satiation. They, they were filled with it. And you're telling me that the Lord of glory made 150 gallons of alcoholic wine to give to people who were already well drunk. Really? I don't think so. 
He wouldn't be just condoning social drinking, would he? He'd be condoning drunkenness, which we've all already admitted is a sin. No, John 2 doesn't give anybody justification for drinking alcoholic wine. It's just not in there. Somebody says, well, Jesus approved of drinking the old wine. John, uh, Luke, rather, chapter 5 and verse 39. Look at that with me for a moment. Luke chapter 5 and verse 39. Jesus is talking about the, the whole issue here is why his disciples don't fast and others do. And he, he talks about you don't put a piece of new cloth on an old garment and so on and so forth. And then he, he relates it to putting new wine into old wineskins in verse 37, or else the new wine will burst, the wineskins will be spilled, the wineskins will be ruined. The wine, and then in verse 38, new wine must be put into new wineskins, and both are preserved. And no one having drunk old wine immediately desires new, for he says the old is better. Well, the old is definitely fermented wine. Old wine that's been in the container for a while has gone through the process of fermentation. Someone says, well, see, Jesus says that's better wine. Does He? Well, He must also be saying then that the Old Testament is better than the New Testament. Because that's His parallel, isn't it? He's paralleling the wine. The New is the New Testament. And He says you're not putting you know, the New in the Old. So, so if, he's, if he's saying, yeah, the Old is better, he's saying the Old Testament's better. That's, that's the parallel that Jesus... People, you talk about grasping for straws. Jesus is using an illustration here. You might note he uses a lot of illustrations concerning things that aren't necessarily right. You can go to the parable of the unjust steward. That doesn't justify a thing what Jesus might use in a parable to demonstrate a spiritual truth. So you've got two things wrong, I think, with trying to use that to justify drinking alcoholic wine. Well, Timothy was told to take a little wine for his stomach and his often infirmities. How much was he told to take? A little. What was it for? Medicine. I don't have a problem with that. I've had NyQuil. Someone says uh, only an excess is prohibited. Just if you drink too much. And they go to passages like Titus chapter 2 and verse 3. Older women are not to be given to much wine. Titus 1 and verse 7, a bishop's not to be given to wine. The problem there is that prohibiting a lot doesn't permit a little. James in James chapter 1 and verse 21 says, Lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness. So we lay aside the overflow of wickedness. So a little bit of wickedness is okay, right? See, it's only the excess of wine that's bad, so a little bit of wine's okay, right? No, that doesn't follow. That doesn't follow at all. The prohibition of an excess of something doesn't permit a little bit of it. You have to go to the verses that talk about a little bit of it to see what, what goes on there. And, and, and most tellingly, when you go back to First Peter where we were a little bit ago, 
and look at 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 4, the next verse of, of the very context that we were in, Peter says this, he speaks in regard to these, the sins that we were just talking about, like drinking, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood or excess of dissipation. Well, that's just if you, if you do a lot of dissipation. A little bit of dissipation is okay, right? You, as long as you don't have a flood. If you have a trickle of dissipation, it's okay. Is that what he's saying? You know better. No, that's, that's not what he's saying. The prohibition of the excess doesn't permit the smaller amount. And then someone says, well, wine's okay, alcoholic beverage is okay, as long as it doesn't cause someone else to stumble. Romans chapter 14 and verse 21, it's good neither to eat meat or drink wine or do any other thing with which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. A lot could be said about this. I will say, in the context of Romans 14, I'm not sure that he's talking about food and drink or meat and wine. Uh, I, I'm not sure that the wine's alcoholic here at all. It could be wine that was offered to an idol. That could be the problem with it. It may not even be alcoholic. I think that juices and things like that were offered to the idols. And partaking of those might cause a brother to stumble in the context that really fits pretty well. But even if that's not the case, the bottom line here is, the way, the way the verse reads, what I read is, I don't know what other people read, what I read is, not that it's good to drink it, but it's good not to drink it. <laughs> he doesn't tell people to drink it, does he? He said, don't drink it, if it causes your brother to stumble. We'll notice in just a second, I'm just about to wind up, I, I know I'm running late, but we'll notice in just a second that it causes people to stumble. And so don't do it. That's what that verse says. Then someone says, well, wine is, is food created by God for man to enjoy. And they use passages like 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 5. Uh, you know, God's created food for us to enjoy. It's all good if it's received with thanksgiving. Uh, Paul tells Timothy... Alcoholic beverage was not created by God. Okay? Grapes were created by God. The juice that's in them was created by God. The fermentation process was created by God. But it takes a man to squeeze the grapes, to treat them just properly in the right way, to create fermented alcoholic grape juice. So that's not a creation of God anyway. But let's pretend like it is. Let's just say God, you know... There's a, there's a uh, 15% alcoholic wine that you can just squeeze right out of the grape. God made it. God made opium, too. We just eat all that we want? Is that okay? You can eat it. It's food. You say, wait a minute, Steve. That's not the same. I, yeah, it is the same. God made a lot of things that man can take into them. Does that mean we can take in all we want? That there are no limits? No, everybody understands. And I haven't said tonight that you can't, you know, that drinking alcohol is, is, is 100% forbidden. We've, we've talked about it being allowed for medicinal purposes, for instance. 
It has a place. But to say, well, it's just a food, and so we have a right to do with it what we want, that's completely taking that out of context. Completely. There are all sorts of foods and other things that God did create that you know there have to be limits to. Well, God's made the limits regarding, regarding alcohol. We, we read the verses tonight where He made those limits. And that gets me to this last passage, Colossians chapter 2 and verse, verse 16 and following, that we're to judge not in food or drink. That refers to regulations that are according to the commandments and doctrines of men. Judge not in food or drink. In food or drink. According to the commandments of men. What about the commandments of God? Can we use the commandments of God to judge something? We've, we've read a lot of commandments of God tonight. What about those? I'm not, I'm not, I haven't been up here. Have I, have I talked about the commandments of men tonight? Have you been up here? Have you heard me making Steve Klein rules up here tonight? This is what Steve Klein says we have to do. I don't think so. We've looked at the doctrines and commandments of God. And to pull out Colossians chapter 2 and say, oh, well, you can't make a law. I'm not making a law. God made the law. It's His law. It's His command. The verses that we've looked at in other places, 1 Peter 4, 3 notably, many other places, I didn't make that up. God put that in the book. Those aren't the doctrines and commandments of men. I want to tell you tonight that I understand and appreciate that it is wrong to bind where the Lord has not bound. And I have not wanted to do that tonight. I've made every attempt not to do that tonight. I'm not trying to make rules where God didn't make them. But it's just as wrong to loose where God hasn't loosed and to put an occasion of stumbling or temptation in the way of another. Jesus said in Luke 17 and verse 1, it's impossible, He says, it's impossible that no offenses should come. But woe to Him through whom they do come. It would be better for Him if a millstone were hung around His neck and He were thrown into the sea than that He should offend one of these little ones. The word offend means to cause or encourage to sin. As we close tonight, I want to tell you a story. It's a story that I could tell probably about dozens of people. And there are probably people here tonight who could tell dozens of stories just like it. But I know this one pretty well. And I want to share it with you. I knew a young man. He was raised in a godly household. He was taught from a little child that drinking was wrong. He never saw his parents drink, drank, drink. None of his, none of their friends drank. He was never around it his whole life growing up. But not, not long after leaving home as a young adult, he had a Bible study with a preacher who told him that it was really okay to drink socially. 
to take a drink once in a while. That was really all right. There was no commandment against that. And so he began buying beer and drinking at home occasionally. Then, after a while, he'd go out and get a drink with buddies socially after work. Eventually, he'd admit that, well, I got a little buzzed, but I'm not really drunk. One thing led to another, and he became involved in sexual immorality, marital unfaithfulness, engaging in the very worst kinds of marital unfaithfulness, losing his faith in the Bible as the inerrant Word of God. That young man was my son. I'm not his judge, but I fear for the preacher who told him that it was okay. I fear for our brotherhood, for the church. I fear that there are a lot of young people who could be easily influenced into a life just like that one. Micah chapter 2 and verse 11. Micah condemns the people of God's uh, people of God of his day. He says if a man would walk in a false spirit and speak a lie and say I will prophesy to you of wine and drink even he would be the prophet of this people. I, I think that's where we are, brethren. I think, I think when preachers stand up and, and say it's, it's okay to drink, that they're, they're going to have a lot of followers, a lot of people who, who love to believe that because of the world around us. The, the, ocean, the sea of the world is getting in the church. And I want to tell you tonight that if I'm the only one to stand against it, and I know I'm not, but if I'm the only one to stand against it, I'm going to stand against it. It's wrong. It'll be wrong. No matter what the world says. No matter who justifies it. No matter what they use for justification. It's wrong according to the Word of God. I appreciate your good attention tonight. I pray that these things will help you as you stand for what's right in this world. It could be that I'm talking to somebody tonight who's in need of responding to the invitation. We haven't talked about what to do to be a Christian, but if you know... Now's a great time to obey the gospel. If you are a Christian and you've fallen into sin, maybe sin related to drinking. There's no better time than right now to turn away from that, to realize what you've done is wrong, confess it, and ask for prayers for forgiveness. We'd ask you to come while we stand and while we sing.